0: Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the
1: law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist.
0: Hello, and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Donna Miller, the Executive Coordinator for the CLSA. Our guest this week is from the Keystone State. Father Lawrence DeNardo is the Vicar General of the Diocese of Pittsburgh. He got his JCL in 1985 from the Catholic University of Mer- America, and that joined his Master's of Church Administration, his Master of Theology, and his BA in Philosophy and Classic Language. He has served the society in many capacities, and we're going to talk about some of those today. So welcome, Father Larry.
1: Welcome. Thank you, Donna, for inviting me for the podcast today. It's a, it's a pleasure, once again, to connect as much as possible with all the members of the Kendall Law Society of America, which I certainly have been inspired by over all my life.
0: Well, thank you for joining us and making time. I know uh, even today as we were preparing, we had to delay a little bit because you have a life outside of, of canon law within the diocese. So let's back up for a second and kind of talk. And I encourage everyone to really listen to your the podcast here where you read your role of law response because you flesh out some of these, or you talk about some of these little things we're going to talk about. But I want to flesh it out a little bit. You mentioned that it probably the way I took it, it maybe wasn't your idea to go study canon law initially? Uh,
1: it was the furthest thing from my mind. Um, when I was ordained to the priesthood, the, my image of the priesthood was certainly service in parish community because that's where I was born and raised. Uh, my mother was the parish secretary of our parish for 42 years. We lived across the street from our church, And, uh, you know, the the bad thing about having your mothers, the secretaries, if if a kid didn't come to serve or they needed candles moved or the father needed something done, we got called to go over and work at the parish. So my experience of church, of of being priest in church life was being a pastor. Um, When I was ordained, I was sent to a parish and I was happy as happy could be. And One day, literally out of the blue, I got a phone call saying, you know, would you come and see the bishop? I hadn't talked to the bishop only twice before I was ordained to the priesthood, so I knew he didn't really know me that well, and I really didn't know him that well. It was Bishop Leonard. And I went to his office, and uh, he was standing there, and he just said, "Um, I'm going to send you to study canon law, and everything's been arranged at Catholic University, and uh, the secretary will give you all the information, and off I went. And that's pretty much... My introduction in the canon law—it was not by—I—I I didn't choose it; it chose me, so to speak.
0: It was the spirit moving. I would—I would, I would yep.
1: say, that's so what I must said. Have,
0: he must have seen something in you, and others must have seen it, and maybe said to him, "Hey, this is the the best person to send." And we're blessed in the in CLSA that that you were sent. So, so you went to Catholic U. Tell us about yes. who, with whom you studied, perhaps, and and the professors. Well,
1: Well, when I went to Catholic U, you know, a lot of the people that I mentioned in the Rule of Law Award were were faculty members. Uh, uh, Jack Lynch, Tom Green, um, uh, Jim Provost uh, were all faculty members. Sister Rose McDermott was there, Um, Sister Sharon Holland. I mean, they were all people, and of course, they are uh, larger than life members of our society, but many of them were all there. Uh, When I went the first time to get the degree in church administration. Uh, we were this was before the revision of the code. So it was very interesting because we were studying the old code. We were studying the uh the schemata of the, the of what might be the new code. Um and we had not yet come to the new code. When I went the second time to get my license degree, it was the new code had been promulgated. So I I found myself in the classroom of being one of the few people who actually knew you know all the various schemata that had existed before and all of the involvement of the society in helping to really revise the entire code of canon law and then doing the commentary and all of those kinds of things so it was an interesting experience because it was an interesting time in the church because it was the major change of the into what we would now call the 1983 code Most people don't even remember that there was a code before that because when they say the code, they mean 1983. For me, when you say the code, I say, well, which one? Because I remember studying the 1917 code too. So only tells you're getting a little older when you can go that far back.
0: (laughs) So am I correct that you joined the CLSA in 1978? 1978.
1: Um, there was always kind of a tradition at Catholic university that when you got there, they had student membership and we all joined and I became a member right away when I first went down to study for the degree in church administration, uh, which was primarily canon law. Um, and was, was a member, have been a member up until this present day, um, and pretty actively involved, maybe not so much in the latter years now because time for new people to take over. Uh, but, uh. Uh, very active involved in 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 the early days and for a long period of time, as I said serving on multiple committees uh too numerous to mention um, had the opportunity to work on a uh, one of the handbooks uh, with father Pacu- monsignor Pacusa and and uh monsignor McKenna um, you know served as the president the vice president the treasurer, the board of governors, and a couple of and, and a number of committees uh I think once they get you on a committee, once they think you might be able to do it, then your name keeps coming up. You know, you just keep moving along on one after another.
0: They say those who are busy are the ones that get called on to do the the most. So one of those uh, items that you didn't mention, but I've printed out, and it's been very helpful to me, is the Future Initiatives Project that you served on. Yes. And it, it looks like it started uh, on uh, – Back in 2004 is when the idea came up. 2006, it looks like the bog took it up. Right. And by 2007, you right. and those on this, this committee produced this, uh, this document. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit more about that future initiatives project. Well,
1: I think the future initiatives project was really meant to try to, in a sense, look at our society and say, you know, we had been built around, uh, we had been built really around the convention, and we had been built around a committee work that existed there uh, that that was in the society but in some way I think like everything else we needed to regenerate ourselves how can we better look into the future uh, at that time the future look into the future what should the society do what 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 should be our goal yes the convention was a great is a great Avenue and still is but maybe we needed to instead of uh, maybe we needed to write work materials not just simply meant for canonists, but maybe materials that were meant for the for the ordinary, everyday Catholic. And particularly, it was the beginning of the growth of lay ecclesial ministry throughout the church. And so, you know, your DRE and your pastoral associate and other people want they need to know something about canon law. How do we begin to maybe move in the direction of not only supporting the canonical training of canonists, but how do we let other people know, who are not canonical, uh, information about the church? So it was kind of to reinvigorate not only the society, but maybe to give ourselves a different direction. And also to stream down the society so we didn't get bogged down in all kinds of committees, but only the ones that we really believed that were essential. You know, Committees on clergy, committee, committee on, on religious life, the Oriental Churches, uh, as they were known in those days, uh, to try to re- restructure ourselves in some way so we could serve better moving into the future. Uh, it was a big project, and I remember we had a lot of meetings uh, of that committee, and, and, the, and the report that we then filed with the convention, which, if I recall correctly, was adopted by the society, became kind of like the roadmap for that period of time. We're probably in a new period of time now. Maybe we need another another committee to study, but that's the, that was its purpose. Its generation was to reinvigorate the society, but more especially to broaden the horizons of canon law, not just simply to a few, but to everybody. Because one of the reasons we did it is because the 1917 code was only written by the scholars because it was written in Latin, and there wasn't many english translations of, of any sort it wasn't a common reading literature the 1983 code was very expansive our society itself published what we called the green book and then the red book um, and so it was people got it but you know uh, like anything else you know law in the hands of the untrained can be dangerous and the goal is is to try to give people what is it really talking about what 's the history what 's the background how does this how did this how do these laws come about? why are they there and then to train p- people that are going to be working with diaconate programs people that are going to be working training catechists people that are going to be working in parishes people who are just doing parish work shouldn 't they know something about the temporal goods of the church so they know something about uh, some of the other uh, sacramental laws so it was really a way to say, well, maybe we need to do something other than just simply—I'll call it—professional books that only the trained canonists can read, to something which is much simpler, which we can explain to any any Catholic, any person, Catholic or otherwise, who wants to know what the law of the church is all about. So that was kind of the 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 the, the germ that began the that future, future the uh, future initiatives committee.
0: I think you were spot on. And there are still many parts of that project that I, like I said, in coming into this role a little over a year ago, have have read it and thought these are still ideas that still need to be pursued. And I want to touch on a couple of things that, um, that Father Dan Smolonic mentioned in his role, uh, his citation, when he introduced you that night. And this is also going to be posted alongside this podcast for folks to see. But he mentioned that, um, you were the one in your diocese at that time responsible for the Department of Canonical Services. Right. And uh, he had said that uh, you're responsible for the research and study of all those canonical questions. Have you gotten any help? Were you alone in that endeavor?
1: Well, when I was, when I was there, that we, we, had, we had decided that the canonical— it came about because we had decided that the canonical people in the diocese were too fragmented— the idea that people got into the tribunal ministry and then their life, their, their, their brain died in the sense that all they did was tribunal work and, and they, never di- they didn't get involved in other things. They did, you know, here they are, marriage cases. Um, and the question that Bishop, at that time that was Bishop uh, uh, Worrell or was our Bishop, said, you know, we need, to, we need to have all of our canonical people more engaged in all of what's going on in church law, we have to have everybody. So, what I'm going to do is appoint you the vicar for canonical services, and your role is to be the chief, the chief lawyer, canonical lawyer for the diocese. But I want you to make sure that everybody who has any degrees in canon law is engaged and involved. And so, we form what we call the canonical council, and uh, we we met every we would meet every month. And at that time, there were only five of us collectively. Um, and uh, now it's a few more. But we we met to start to talk about wide range of canonical issues. It was also meant to help us to educate ourselves. So we all knew a little bit about everything in the law, not just a little thing that we may have been working on for 20 years. Um, and so now we have a whole department. Uh, I, when I became the, when I became the uh, vicar general general secretary, um, one of the other canons who was the judicial vicar took my role as the vicar for canonical services. And they are also, they're responsible then for all the canonical activities. So they're responsible for the, the tribunal, they're responsible for the independent review board, for all the kinds of things that we have. So it was a really an attempt to get everybody, as many that we had, which were not many, all working together, not working in silos, and the vicar would be responsible to making sure that everybody was kind of uh, rowing the boat in the same direction and that's and it's worked pretty effectively over all these years and I notice other dioceses now have vicars for canonical services uh, and it's really meant to 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 I think at least in our, our role was to bring everybody together. Uh, all the canonical talent that you have because the questions are many and varied and you need a lot more minds because, you know, two minds are better than one to try to deal with all the problems, whether it's reorganizing parishes, whether it's issues related to uh, misconduct, uh, whether it's just uh, property issues or whatever it might be. You just need more people. And And so we engaged everybody. We also brought in in our canonical council people that weren't working for the diocese, but had canonical degrees who happened to be in our diocese um, Several uh, women religious who worked in their communities But we brought them as part of the canonical council, too So we could broaden to anyone who had a degree in canon law whether they worked for the diocese or not were part of the group
0: That's fascinating. That's all-encompassing so that must have led in some ways, and this was during a time period in those early 2000s when the sexual abuse crisis had really gotten underway, right. and uh, Father Smolonic mentioned that you were a judge on penal trials of clerics, what? which, uh, what kind of advice would you give to, let me back up for a second, we just started a penal law series. For- yeah, and, I, I, and
1: I see you have one of the uh, preeminent people, uh, 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 Freddie's giving the, the giving. I saw it online, he's yes. excellent.
0: What would you say to a a cleric who is perhaps being tasked with being a judge in penal uh, cases and maybe has no experience or is timid?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I have to say, you know, it was, for me, that was a very, very new and different experience because, you know, I had worked in the marriage tribunal for a while, so I kind of understood that. I think really what, what was the most important thing for me is really trying to spend significant time at that time, uh, with with very little little literature out there, um, you know, understanding the penal procedures, how does it all work, and how is it intended to work? Um, the first point. Secondly, recognizing that you have to come in with 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 a clarity of your mind that people are presumed to be innocent unless you can prove their guilt. Uh, sometimes, when we deal with misconduct cases or uh, lots of cases, we have to be careful that we don 't come in individually with our own preconceived ideas of how life ought to be or what we think um, and then the most difficult was really uh whenever you were dealing with or, or or talking to those who had been abused to kind of put on yourself the mantle of being a pastor as opposed to being a canonist because sometimes we want, we say we're pastoral, but we can talk in canonical words and canonical language that doesn't give people enough warm and fuzzies. It's too much lawyer-like. So I, I had talked to an older priest who had been not a penal, not a judge in penal cases, but was an older canonist. And he said, when you talk to people about these sensitive issues, think of them like they're in confession and be as pastoral as you can and you will get more information from them than you would ever really want if you if you ask them questions like you're a lawyer they probably won't answer you too much or they won't say a lot and he was absolutely right and so my advice has always been from the very beginning to try to know understand what the penal law is make sure people understand the procedures do the things you got to do. Make sure you do it all correctly, but in communicating, whether it's to the accused or to the or to or to the accusers, to try to deal with them as pastorally as you can, um, because they want to hear the church and they want to hear Jesus through you. They don't really want to hear. Uh, uh, they don't really want to hear somebody speaking to them as though they were in some courtroom. They really just want a pastor, or whoever it may be, and and that was kind of how I try to do that. Now it takes a little bit more time because you got to kind of get everybody engaged, and but in the end, I think it works more effectively. And that that's kind of the tools that I've used whenever I've been asked to do these, and I've been asked on a number of occasions to do this.
0: I think what you touch on is that that whole concept of the law is not there to bind but to it's it's a structure of course but sure but it's also there to be a freeing experience Uh, that's right and you mentioned in in your response that why do why does the church need law
1: well the point of it was i was trying to make with with this that your question was really to to give the idea that that when people come to the church whether they come when they come to the church, whether, whatever they're coming for, whether they're coming because they want to seek a declaration of nullity of their marriage or whether they're coming because there's a penal law action or whatever it may be, they're coming ultimately to the church more than just because they want some legal remedy solved. They're coming to the church because they want the church to listen to them, and they also want the church as part of their own personal healing. Uh, They don't come just simply because they're, we're not like the Supreme Court where we just simply issue a ruling and they publish it in a bulletin. Uh, They're coming to us because they want healing. And so we, we, we have to use the law. We have to use the structures. We have to make sure we follow the processes that have been designed by the church. But the way we do it has to be as healing as it can possibly be, less at the end of it, we kind of win the war, but you know, but lose the battle because, you know, we win the little battle, but we lose the war, as they would say, because they come, but they didn't, they didn't find any healing or graciousness on the part of the church, even though the case may have gone the way they wanted it to be. So it's kind of that balance. They come to us for one thing, and we have to make sure that we fulfill what they're there for. They're for, there for healing. We're also there for healing and because we have to adjudicate the situation that is presented before us. And that's, at least that's how I view it. Others may have different ways of doing it, but that's what I've tried to do.
0: A lot of times in these podcasts, I've been asking our rule of law recipients to give advice to those who are thinking of studying canon law. And we can certainly, I would certainly ask you to do that. But I'll, I want you to, what would you say to a bishop as he's selecting? oftentimes it's clergy to go study. Should there be some years of pastoral experience before they just shift them off to study?
1: Yeah. I've often thought, you know, in my own experience, you know, I was only a parochial vicar for three years before I went to study canon law. Um, If somebody would ask me today, and, and I've advised bishops to do this, that I would certainly be looking for someone who has, first of all, a lot more or more pastoral experience and probably not simply judge their, uh, their intellectual capacity to do the studies, which sometimes I think becomes a criteria. You know, we have Father X, and, you know, he's very good in Latin, and he's very bright, and he's a, and he's a good student. That's an important aspect. But I would be more interested, and I am more interested in, in is the person a very pastoral person? Does this individual, does this priest really, how well does he do in a parish? Uh, because I think sometime in the past, people went to study law because they didn't do well in a parish, so we were looking for a job for him. And law isn't a job for, for people who don't have a pastoral sensitivity first. Uh, so I would say to a bishop, people of a little bit more experience, been around, people who have... Uh, uh, shown that they they are they're 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 good pastors and they're good pastor material and also have the intellectual capacity to be able to do that i'm sure the reason why bishops don't always do that is because you know when people get settled into parish life and all of that they don't want to be taken out of it to go back to school it's like easier to get a guy to go back to school when he's only been out a year or two rather than 10 years uh but I think if we're looking for the kind of people that we would want, that would be the kind of person, the person who has a, that pastoral ability, has worked with people, understands the problems that are going on in people's lives. Because when you become a canon lawyer and you work in administration, you're going to just deal with them in spades. Uh, and you won't know them as well as you knew them in the parish. They're just going to call you on the telephone and tell you their troubles and expect you to have an instantaneous answer.
0: So are there any particular experiences that you can think of within your canonical ministries where you found something particularly gratifying or felt affirmed in the, your role as a canonist?
1: Yeah, probably for myself, it has been, and, I, and I'll say this, in this and, and I don't mean this to be uh, self-serving, but uh, one of the talents that I think that people say I have uh, is the capacity to try to make canon law Interest in law, simple. Um, I've been told that I'm a reasonably good teacher. And so, usually, the experiences are after having had a priest workshop, and guys will come up to you and say, Yeah, I never really understood that. You made it real basic, real simple like. So, it's the feeling that you've been able to explain something in a way that somebody out there who wants to know understands what, what, what it's all about. Without becoming too complicated, and so from my experience, I mean, it's not mine. I think it's just a, it's it's a God-given talent. I I have that ability, or have been given that ability, to be able to try to make everything take a big problem, make it small, and give a simple answer without without too much complexity, and to explain to people. One of the priests one time told me, you know, I hate not law except when you talk because you always make it interesting. I didn't know I did that, but. I think that's just kind of what I, what I find gratifying, that people at least listen. Because once you say canon law, a lot of people get shut off instantaneously. So they feel that they've learned something. It's great. And probably uh, Father Tommy Kunz, who's uh, the, uh, now the Vicar for Canonical Services in our diocese, the two of us, uh, teach a course at Duquesne University Law School uh, in canon law and students can take it as an elective and it's always interesting to have a class where there are catholics uh there are non-catholics there are non there are people of no religious tradition uh, there are people of jewish faith and they're all there and and they're all trying to learn the science of canon law and really to watch their faces this year was a little tougher because we had to do it on zoom but watch their faces when they can say they didn't even know the church had a legal system, and then when they understand the whole how it sort of works, they're very very they're very amazed by how how canon law really is a science based on our theological principles, and so that's probably the biggest joy being able to communicate to people what the law is about and have them actually react to you and say, "Gee, I understand that 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 sounds reasonable, or sometimes they tell you they don't agree with you, but that's okay too."
0: I have to thank you for your, uh, in your rule of law acceptance response, you probably have the best public service announcement for joining the CLSA. And one of those pieces that you talked about was Roman replies and CLSA advisory opinions. What would you say to to canonists practicing out there about uh, contributing advisory opinions? Do you see that as valuable?
1: I always saw that as valuable. I mean, you know, when I, when I, when I was asked to, or or, or informed that I was the recipient of the role of law award, I couldn't figure out why. Because everybody whose names were before me were people who had done scholarship. That's not me. I've never, I'm not not the scholar guy who's going to sit down and write a 30-page article on some topic. Uh, That's just not who I am. I figured I was selected because I had had long involvement in the society in many, many, many different ways. And it was also a time in our history where, like everybody else, all the the canonical people out there are overwhelmed with work up to their eyeballs. Everybody's got work in their dioceses, in their religious communities, every place, and time is difficult. So the point I was making in, in my role of law acceptance speech, and I would make today, is that you gotta be involved in the society, not simply for yourself, but for everybody else. So it's sort of like a Christian act. I'm writing an advisory opinion, not because I wanna sit down and write or get my name on it. It's so that somebody else might be helped out there who probably has the same issue or the same problem and doesn't know where to go to get an answer. Uh, So that the purpose of 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 our organization, of our society is So that each one of us can train and share our experiences with other people to make every one of us better at what we do. You know, we don't we're not like the legal profession that requires people to have so many credits every year in order to keep their licenses. We don't do that. So how do we, quote, keep our license so we actually know what what's actually happening today? Not what we learned 20 years ago when we were sitting in someone's classroom. And really, Roman replies, advisory opinions, you know, some people have scholarship and want to write in journals, encouraging people to serve on committees where they can express their knowledge or their understandings, Uh, you know, being willing to give talks or papers at the conventions about topics, because I know from my experience as president, it's hard to get people to do that all the time. People don't want to do that this becomes kind of like, okay, it's not about me. It's trying to give whatever, I, whatever uh, kernels of thought I might have to other people to help other people learn from the, the good or the bad experiences that I've had in whatever canonical tradition it is. So to me, I see the society as an organization whose purpose is to not just be an organization that we have a membership card, but an organization where we learn from each other what we need to know to make us better at what we're supposed to do, and we learn by our involvement in whatever way we want to become involved. Not just, not only showing up at a convention—that's good, you know—but maybe being a speaker, maybe being involved in a committee, maybe writing an article, maybe doing an advisory opinion uh, about a topic that. They have crossed your desk and say, gee, this is interesting. Maybe somebody else might want to know. So I see all that as important. And, and, yeah, I guess my role of law, somebody else said that to me one time, you know, you must have, you, you must have been, were offered a paid political announcement. And I said, well, no, just my feeling, because that's, that was my experience. I learned about how to do the law from the people that I served on these committees with, not out of the books that I got.
0: Well, thank you again thank you for that because I, I it's no secret that over the years the society has lost some members and unless we all see it as as you said our role is to be a member not just what can i get but what can i contribute and what can i get right right.
1: Yeah, it's great to it's great that we put out all kinds of publications and i know they are less these days than what they were before um mm-hmm. but it 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 it's better almost that we share more information with each other because, you know, that's how, that's how we, that's how we learn, right? I mean, we learn from our experiences and we learn from our successes and we learn from our failures and it's good to tell people, Hey, this is what worked and this is what kind of didn't work so well as I, as I or anyone else tried to apply the law to whatever situations in the present time. I think uh, Donna, We've become more complicated too. The, the world in which we live is much more complicated, so canon law is even more important now than it was years ago, because everybody has issues about all kinds of different things. Whether it's you know the, the celebration of the sacrament of of baptism, with people presenting a person for baptism, of which you know nobody who's in front of you has ever been in the church for the last 20 years. This is their first experience of church, and they're bringing their child for baptism because well, Grandma wants that, and that's the way it's always been, you know, all the way to really dealing with all of the problems of uh, people wanting to enter into marriage who have been previously living together, problems of, of, of all kinds of issues with sacraments. We have property issues. We've got, you know, sexual misconduct. We've got all kinds of things going on. So there's a lot happening there.
0: Absolutely. And like you said, the pastoral comes into play. So our time is kind of going short, but I have uh, one more question before I invite you for your final comments or anything. And that is in your acceptance, uh, actually, it was, yes, in your acceptance uh, response, you said um, that when you received the call from Father Smilon that you were on your way to Tampa for the 43rd Super Bowl, the big question right. is did Pittsburgh win?
1: yes they won in the, in the last in the last 10 seconds um the uh ben rothensberger threw a pass into the end zone and the guy caught it and basically just barely tapped his toes um, before the, he reached the end line and they won the game in the last uh, in the last 10 seconds of the game and they won and uh we were happy i've been to almost many of the super bowls because uh I know the family that owns the Steelers. They they actually were went to the, went to the church where I was the pastor of over on the north side part of Pittsburgh.
0: So. <laughs> well, I knew that they had won, or I wouldn't have asked you. That would have been too defeating. But the, those poor Arizona Cardinals. They just Arizona Cardinals. Yeah, <laughs> that's life. That's yeah, life. So, um, so any final comments or uh, just words for the members of the C.L.S.A. Well,
1: well, Donna. First of all, I want to thank you for giving me the opportunity to be part of a podcast. I mean, um, uh, I have to say, the Rule of Law Award is something that I would never have dreamed of when I first started in the society. And I just would encourage every member of our society uh, to to continue to you know do what they're doing. I know they're all doing hard work out there, but to give a little bit of their time to the to the to, to the Can Law Society of America, because. Even people like myself who are, who are the old dogs of the group, you know, still have a lot to learn and we can learn from the experience of other people. So I would encourage everyone to be a participant uh, in, in our society to help us to grow and to become better canonists in service to God's people. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you so much, Father Donardo, And we will uh, we'll keep you in our prayers and we ask you to do the same during these uh, unconventional times.
1: Very difficult times.
0: Yes. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. I Thank you. Bye-bye.